about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. And may the eyes of my lord take the king, the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting man of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroah, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazza. They went to Gilead and the region of Tahintum, Hodeshi, and on to Danjan and around Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress Tyre and all the towns on the Hivites and the Kenites. Finally, they went on to Bathsheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David Seah. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Bathsheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to an angel who was afflicting the people, Enough. Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hands fall on me and my family. 
On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Renua, the Jebusite. So David went up, as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arua looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his hand to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the servant come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Uh, The second Bible reading is from John chapter 10 um, and starting at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, good evening. Great to be with you this evening as we finish uh, this series on David to Samuel and, uh, yes, this sermon series before we head into Hebrews next week. My name's Mike, I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, great to have you here tonight. And I'd love to say I'm looking forward, I think I am looking forward to this, but it's just, as we read that first reading, you're not kind of like, oh, you know, even that opening verse, like straight into the thick of it. See, when I was thinking about finishing off this series, and you know, it's been a great series looking at, you know, one of the most famous kings of the Old Testament, I was kind of hoping for sort of felt bored David. As the conclusion, I don't know if you had the, the privilege of growing up in Sunday school um, and kind of having, you know, before kind of iPads and that kind of stuff, a little, a little felt board picture of sort of the characters of the Old Testament and there's kind of these stories are kind of, they're beautiful and they're happy and there's kind of happy felt board David leaving his, leading his well-to-do people and he's bringing about kind of the blessings of God and everything's happy and fairytale-like. But that's not, that's not what we read. <laughs> it's far from it, actually. 
See, when you think about history is often written by the victors. If I was writing the story of Israel, and if I was writing about my awesomeness, I'd write this. This would be my conclusion, you know, the fairy tale ending. But I think this is the Word of God. This is not about the glories of Israel. It's not about the victors who are writing it. It's about messy people and a love story of how God in His awesomeness poured out His glory and His love on a messed up, wayward, sinful people, and that's complex. It's messy. It's kind of more like, this is kind of my artistic expression of how this finishes. It's scratched, the colours are all messed up. And when I look at the world around me, I don't want a felt-bored version of the Gospel. I need, I need a complex and rich story to meet the complexities of, of my life, of this world I live in, to, to sort of reach into the messed up things I'm seeing around me. As I'm scrolling through Facebook, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a whole bunch of kind of just hate about rights, fear, mongering. It's not a happy place. I went to a public lecture a little while ago by Tim Dixon, a, a public policy writer, and he said as he sort of reflected on tribalism in society, he said, there are more things pulling us apart than holding us together. It's not a very optimistic view. And as I reflect on my own leadership in different spheres and my own inability to solve the issues I see before me and to, to roll out the blessing I want that people, for people to experience, I, I, need, I need a better story than a felt board Sunday school story. I need a real story that joins the complex, broken world that I'm experiencing and and the hope that is real and transformative. This passage is is that. it's, It's messy, it's confronting, it's complex, it's provocative. And we're going to need to be careful, thoughtful readers tonight that we might see what the author wants us to see the glory of God, and how He joins Himself with a wayward, messed up people. Let me pray. Father, I pray that You would help us listen to Your Word tonight, that Your Word might be living and active and and cut through the stuff that's sitting in our brains, that our hearts might be set on fire for You tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might be familiar with kind of, you know, narrative arcs. As we kind of be attentive readers to this narrative, I just want to sort of rehash kind of, you know, what might be sort of telling people to suck eggs. But, you know, this narrative arc is how Marvel have made their millions. Like this is the kind of the the formula for kind of how to make an interesting story. You start off at the bottom with kind of a predicament and then kind of begins the, the journey, you know, the hero's quest, as it were, until you reach the climax, some stuff goes on. And then on the other side is like how things resolve, you know, life on the other side of the climax. Uh, the whole Bible is a story and kind of follows this kind of arc. This passage is like that. I mean, this, this, as we've been following David, we, we've seen from the beginning of 1 Samuel that the predicament of looking for a leader, not just a leader like every other nation, but looking for a king that is worthy of the Lord. And kind of we see how, how good he becomes and kind of we rejoice with Israel, seeing the hope that, that there is in him. And then 
in the climax, we kind of see that it just doesn't quite gel. It doesn't actually work like we'd want it to work. And he's just as messed up as everyone else. He fails. And the kingdom and the blessing we want for Israel just slips out. And as we hit kind of tonight, as we hit the predicament in these opening words, we don't read of flourishing, we read of fury. Read with me and keep the Bibles open. 2 Samuel 24, again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now I want to say that this, just this half verse, that's the predicament that sets up the journey that unfolds from here. Just this first half verse, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Israel have sinned and the Lord is angry. We're not told what they did, so that we can't sort of sit over this narrative and say, well, they deserve that. <laughs> we don't get to play that game. The, the author doesn't want us to get involved in that detail. The author just wants us to see how this sets up a trajectory, to see the main game of how God's going to join a messed up people and, and who he is. That's where we're headed. This is just setting us up. And so it begins the journey. And, and the Messiah, God's anointed one, that's what Messiah means, uh, he enters the plot, but he's no noble on a steed here rescuing the damsel in distress or solving the other gender stereotype plot lines. No, he enters, he enters as part of the problem. This, this, very, this, this is very humbling, I find, because as one who likes to sort of step in and solve problems, I find that I too am also part of the problem. And kind of keep reading with me, the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them. That's how David enters this story. God incites David as an instrument in God's sovereign plan to judge Israel. Now let's just pause for a moment. I know we're only in verse one. I'll get faster, I promise. Uh, but let, let's drill into this language because it's, it's troubling a little bit that God would do such a thing, that he would incite David like this. Now, the word incite could be translated allured. And kind of, you know how alluring works, it, we could read it like, uh, God allured David in accordance with his own sinful desires. That's kind of how alluring works, right? But it's more complicated than that. Because if we read uh, in 1 Chronicles, which kind of parallels uh, the story of the kings, it's kind of like the same story told a bit differently, we read this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Now, in my understanding of the Bible, we don't use God and Satan interchangeably. So what's happening there? A theological reading of this text would be, the Lord, in his anger, allowed Satan to allure David in accordance with his own sinful desires. And I say this, it's important, because God is not the author of evil, He's not the perpetrator of evil, but he works in and through it for his sovereign purposes. Do you see that, how that's important? Pastorally, I find this really helpful because, see, David, he's, he's Messiah, he's God's anointed one, but he's also really messy. His own evil desires are playing out in this story. And I find that helpful because I am a saved sinner. I am saved in the mercy of God, and yet I find kind of my desires are warped and, and, and wayward and all kinds of stuff go on, and yet God is sovereign. I don't need to fret, oh my goodness, I've just totally unraveled God's plans. 
in my own evil desires. Now, God is sovereign. He's going to work through that. See, maybe you're fretting over kind of where you're sitting in that, in that tension, that battle between God and Satan. But that's not how it is. Actually, I've not spoken about Satan as much as I have in Newtown, anywhere else in Sydney. Uh, just in the last two weeks, I've had some interesting conversations. A guy who I met around the traps, he said, look, I'm really interested in Jesus, and I keep finding myself bumping into Christians, but see, I feel the real power of Satan, and I'm attracted to that. Like, that's the language he was using. He's involved in those kind of circles, and he's really feeling really torn between the power play between God and Satan. I said to him, brother, I said, they're not level pegging. There's God who is sovereign over all. And there is Satan who has real power. But God works even through Satan for his purposes. And we've seen that. You know, if you go back to Genesis 50, you read about how Joseph, he's kind of talking to his brothers who tried to kill him. And he said, what you meant for evil, God was able to work through and turn it into good. We see that ultimately in Jesus as Peter kind of does that speech in Pentecost where he says, you killed the author of life. What you did in evil plans, God foreknew and was able to work his glory through. You see how they're not level pegging? Even though Satan has power and really is at work in this narrative through the evil desires of David, God is sovereign and we're going to see how that unfolds. I think that's really liberating, if you're, particularly if you're really fretting on this stuff. And so David is indeed incited and he follows his evil desires and they manifest in him taking a census. <laughs> You're like, what? In the counting of the fighting men in his kingdom. <laughs> it's hard to get a hold as to why that's so bad. And again, the author doesn't really let us into what that's about in any significant way, except that David will realize that it really was sinful at that point. That's all we can say. We don't know exactly why that was a bad thing. We can guess, but why bother? The author's saying that's not an important detail. All we need to know is God uh, allowed Satan to work through David's evil desires to let this play out. So even, the, even Joab, the military leader, verse 3, says, why would my king want to do such a thing? David says, this is how I want to do it. And for 10 months, he counts his power and his strength. If only he had kind of like you know, the electronic sensor stuff that we use, that would have been awesome, right? But again, we're not told why it's sinful, but verse 10, read with me. David was, was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And we don't really know why, but that's, that's his realization. I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Now, we might know what it's like to be in that situation when, when you've realized that you've been foolish, that you have sinned, transgressed, and you have this, now, this, this burden of guilt. And what are you going to do with that burden? Well, maybe we don't know that as much as we ought. I was speaking to someone who works in HR, so kind of hiring and firing, and uh, I said, well, well, how do you see kind of guilt playing out in your workforce? And she said, actually, I don't, I don't see it a lot. To, to the point where I had to call someone into the office the other day, and um, they, this person had, had, had taken a casual worker on the staff team and bought a whole bunch of paint on staff money and said, now you go paint my house. And when the HR person found out about that, they said, you can't do that, you're fired. What? <laughs> Wait, there was no guilt. 
there was no realization that that was not an okay thing to do. And as I was talking with this friend of mine who's a Christian, this HR person, we reflected on John 15, where Jesus said, if I had not spoken, they would not be guilty of sin. And as we live in a world that's just like totally left Jesus behind, no wonder there's no guilt. There's no realization that they've done anything wrong. It's just almost a non-ashame culture again now, where it's only when you're called out. The thing is, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to bring mercy, and his words are words of life. Even when they sting. And for David, these words are stinging for him because he realizes that he has transgressed, that he has sinned, and he comes before the Lord begging for mercy. And we know that God is merciful, and so we're expecting God to kind of resolve this. We're expecting him to kind of work through the prophet Gad and kind of who sent to David to sort of give three options. And we're expecting kind of, you know, maybe three blessings, you know, three promises. Instead, did, did you remember what he said? Verse 13, let's read it together. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? That's door number one. Door number two, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you. Or door three, or three days of plague in your land. Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who has sent me. That is God. You're like, what? David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. What a dreadful decision to have put on him. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, he says, for his mercy is great but do not let me fall into human hands. And so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Bathsheba died. <laughs> what kind of response is that to David's confession for his plea for mercy? Now, 70,000, just to kind of be a little bit technical, thousand could also be translated as military units which you know, could be groups of 10 people, so maybe 700 people died. And even still, God kind of responded with a plague. Before we get to some bigger resolutions, let me just kind of work on this, because this is, I'm with David, I find this deeply distressing. What kind, of, what kind of God toys with David like this? And, and what does this say about the character of God, and, and how am I supposed to stand before this God? Just a couple of little resolutions as we keep going on this journey. Firstly, the original problem set up in this narrative was not the census. So the resolution is not going to be purely about the census. It's like kind of there's like a little mini story on the way. And that mini story is kind of, is about David carrying out his own evil desires. And that's resolved to a point where, you know, he's before God pleading for mercy and we can assume that God was merciful and kind of actually forgave him for that, except now he's involved in Israel's predicament. He's involved in their problem. Because the original predicament for the whole narrative was Israel's sin. Do you remember? Not just David's. So now David stands as the Messiah, as part of the problem, as part of the original predicament. And he's not able to bring around a resolution because he's just as bad as everybody else. But the larger issue for us, I think, 
is that we want to say the answer is love. Not, not an angel of judgment and death. Did you feel that? Like for our modern ears, this is, this is hard, hard hearing. And to help us just kind of wrestle with that a little bit, I was reminded of some work that Miroslav Volf did, a theologian who really wrestled with this, having grown up in the, in, in the conflict between Croatia and Serbia, wrestling with forgiveness and justice and love. And um, his writing is very dense, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. He gives a thought experiment. He said, imagine, imagine you're giving a, a public talk on, on the love of God. You're like, no, that's it. I'm done. I can't do that. I'm not doing public talks. But just imagine, thought experiment. You've asked to give a public talk on the love of God. God's perfect, non-coercive, nice love, right? And, and your audience is people from cities and villages that have been plundered, burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have been slaughtered. And as you speak of this nice love, you find your audience kind of turns against you. They are angry because the lives of their loved ones that have been brutally and barbarically cut short are not at all loved by your message of nice love with its call to non-retaliation. That audience is asking, where is judgment? Where is the love for those who've lost their lives? Bolf says, only in the quiet suburban home do we see nice love so simply without any need of judgment. Now, I just find that super interesting because I think in the Western world now, we are living out a nice love largely because of the Christian Judeo, the Judeo-Christian ethic. We've actually sort of ushered in the kingdom in, a, in, a, in kind of a way, except we've now jettisoned the king. We, we don't want this judgment. We don't want this God with all the baggage he carries. We just want nice love. Wolf's thesis kind of makes sense because God, it's because God is love that he judges. And we can't forget that there is great need for judgment in this world because there is actually so much wrong with it. We just, we just don't like the idea that we are under that judgment as well. And I think part of that is because we see ourselves like David as part of the solution, not part of the problem. I think that's what this little extra story in the middle is doing, helping us see that David is not part of the solution, he is part of the problem. And now God is involving him, not only in the predicament, but in how it will be resolved as the Messiah. Because if David reveals in his own life that he's part of the problem, it helps me see that I too am no better. So David the Messiah is one with the people, he's part of the problem, he's now involved in God's judgment, and then it's just at that point we realize that he can't fix this, that he can't join God and the people who have evoked his anger. It's just at that moment that we reach our climax. Verse 16 and 17. Read with me. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. That's the kind of climax in a way at the superficial level. 
that the, that the plague has stopped, but then the author drives us into the heart of this climax, because the word when there actually isn't in the original. That's actually, you know, we're seeing kind of like at a deeper level why and how the Lord relented. David saw the angel who was striking down the people. He said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? He knows they've been sinful, but comparatively, he's saying, I'm the shepherd here. I've done wrong. Let your hand fall on me and my family. I, the shepherd, have sinned. Don't let them suffer. Let me take on their punishment. What he's asking for is atonement. This kind of fancy religious word, at one moment. He's asking that God would join himself and Israel by taking the punishment on himself. Now David is able to say that as one who stands in their plight, involved in their predicament, and as the Messiah, as the leader. And it resonates with the very heart of God, and it unlocks a creative God option. God says to David, Go to build an altar and make a sacrifice, one that God finds acceptable because of, God's, because of David's repentance. See, his humility, his willingness to self-sacrifice, God takes that in, acknowledges it, and says, I will not let you die for this. Take on a substitute. Let my wrath fall on the substitute that you might go free. But that option only is unlocked when David comes before God in humble repentance. And so we reach the resolution, if we just got straight to the last verse. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, atonement offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Israel was spared. They might go free. Even though they sinned, even though David sinned, they would go free because in God's mercy, he accepted an alternate substitute, that his judgment would fall on the substitute and not on all of Israel, not on the Messiah. But the thing is, right, is you just have to read over a couple more pages into 1 Kings and you find that the kind of this, this narrative arc just restarts again, <laughs> And as you, as you look at the world around, you know, I, I know that love is the answer, but I'm continually confounded by my own experience and the experience of others in our inability to live it and sustain it, which says to me that, that we haven't fully resolved the predicament in verse 1, the sin of the people which evokes the wrath of God. And I think part of our inability to, to see this out to see the depth of the issues here, is that we assume that the other is the problem. And we're not really ready to stand in humility and self-sacrifice. And we're just not willing to see how corrupted our hearts are. The atonement, the rejoining of God and the people that evoked his anger was only temporary with this substitute that David offered. It would have to be offered again and again as this narrative arc unfolds again and again, this, this human condition just keeps on rolling out. 
We try and fix ourselves, fix others, only to end up counting our own strength. Our goodness is corrupted. But here's the thing. David's best words and actions would be repeated by someone who would have the power to bring about an atonement that would last forever, that would be transformative right down to the core. We we read about him in the second reading. I, the shepherd, Jesus says, I, the good shepherd. And, And the good shepherd does more than just kind of like bring out the solution, more than just kind of lead the people in power and victory. No, no, no. I, the good shepherd, lays down his life, my life, for the sheep. There is Jesus flexing his Messiahship in self-sacrifice. Let your judgment fall on me, says this good shepherd, so that the sheep, even though they are wayward, might find life and life to the full and might be passing, might have God's judgment pass over them. And unlike David, This shepherd, this good shepherd, this Jesus, does not act out of a a greater guilt, asking to have the punishment fall on his own failings, his own sinfulness. No, no, this good shepherd asks for judgment to be put on him as a sinless leader. That the sin of the people would be overlooked and counted upon him. See, love indeed is the answer. But instead of being incompatible with judgment, such love fulfills judgment and brings about an ultimate resolution. Because not too far from where David made this sacrifice, indeed where the temple would be built, Jesus would be hung on a cross to make atonement for us, to join us with the living God, that we need not fear standing before him in all his holiness and majesty, that we might be made one with him. And this would have power to bring about real hope. See those words from John 10? Life and life to the full. And that's not a fairy tale ending. That is made possible by the, by the transformative power of the atonement, of the blood of Christ. And when you look at kind of at, at, at the, how you trace the shape of this out, it, it flows out in every direction. As you look at the atonement kind of upwards, you see how, how, how before God, Jesus acts as that penal substitutionary atonement. He said, let me be that sacrifice. I will lay down my life for the sheep. And he was judged, penal. He was the substitute so that we didn't have to die. And he atoned for us that we might be joined back to God. That we might have forgiveness. That all of that which is Christ's would be ours. And you look at the power of the atonement downward. And you see kind of how this act of sacrifice, what Jesus did on the cross, had power to destroy the power of Satan. That Jesus would have victory over Satan. That even though his death on the cross looked like Satan had won, looked like death had won, he rose again to show that while Satan is at work in this world, and while he has power, it's nothing compared to the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. 
speaking of conversations about Satan, just a couple of days ago, someone calls up the office and asks for prayer. And I kind of say, well, you know, tell us your story. How can I pray for you? She says, uh, two years ago, I broke up with my Satanist uh, ex-partner, and he cast an omen on me. And since that moment, I've not had the love of God, not had the love of people. My life is kind of going down. And she's like, I just, I just need prayer. And I said, do you know about the power of Jesus? And we talked about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and how Jesus has power to liberate us from Satan's words and actions and, and power in our life. That we would no longer have to listen to the accusations of him. That we not need fear what he's doing in our life and in the world. And that we would rest assured because Jesus has the power to set us free, to transform us, and to bring us real hope. And all of this pushes us forward, that, that we might be able to love truly, that we, not need acting, we don't need to act out of fear, that we can respond to injustice even with love, and that we might be able to forgive as we've been forgiven. And our access into all of this is modeled for us in David. I have sinned. I need your mercy. I need the blood of Christ. Would you help me repent that I might be a living sacrifice, that I might live for you? See, this shepherd, this good shepherd, enters into our mess, takes on our story, stands with us even in judgment, and atones, joins our whole life with the whole of God so that we might have hope. Is that not good news? That as challenging as this passage is, as we're confronted by the power and the judgment of God, His mercy is greater. As I thought over this passage over this last week and kind of just looked at my life, you know, I, I saw some kind of resonance with, with David's life and, and my life. You know, I was just sort of thinking about over this last week particularly, my, my resilience was just kind of like, it was just plummeting. And I don't, I don't want kind of empathy for the situation in my life that caused that. What, what I do want, what I, and I was interested in, was my heart's response to the circumstances in my life. I was interested in why I wasn't trusting in God like I ought. And I think at the heart of it, I was like David, counting myself as the Savior, acting out my strength. And God's bound up my predicament in, in God's greater story. And so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to finish by praying kind of based on some of the words that David used. And as I pray this in, I wonder if tonight you might take the opportunity to, to think about where your life's at and where your heart's at. And that you might pray in the glory of the atonement. That you might live out the glory made known to you. So let me finish with these words that I've written in a prayer. I, a shepherd, have done wrong. The sheep around are really frustrating me, and I've been trying too long to fix it in my own strength. Not only that, but I stand as feeble and as weak and sinful as those around me that I accuse. I've been living like an orphan, evoking 
your frustration and grieving you. But your hand has not fallen on me, for the true shepherd has taken that for me. He has revealed to me that I am not an orphan, but a son. Give me strength to live out your love, to trust in what you've secured, and to not be fearful. Help me to be a peacemaker and to hold out your grace that you've given me. For the cross of your son is my strength and my deliverance. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.